you may, may have remembered this verse. It is he who sits above the circuit of the earth. And I'm, I'm reading from the literal English version, and your ESV is, if you have those, say the circle of the earth. It is he who sits above the circuit or circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So, this idea of a, an orbit or a circuit or a circle, where's, idea, where's Isaiah getting that? See, there's, there's two aspects of prophecy. There's the supernatural prediction of future events that Pastor's talking about today and will be talking about for many weeks to come. But there's also the supernatural revelation of current existence. And that's what's happening here. There is no way for Isaiah to know that that is in fact the reality of our universe. That the earth is a sphere. That the earth is on a circular orbit around the sun. Isaiah cannot know that information and yet the Holy Spirit is supernaturally giving him that information here about the universe that God created. So you might say, well, when was Isaiah written? Around 700 B.C. And the ancient Greeks first came up with the idea that the earth was, in fact, a sphere. In fact, um, Eratosthenes was the first to actually accurately measure the circumference of the earth. And it's a very interesting mathematical, using high school algebra one and geometry, um, he was able to determine the circumference of the earth because he believed that the earth was a sphere. And that's how he worked it out. Well, he wasn't the first to believe that. He was the first to measure, accurately measure the circumference of the earth. So maybe 100 years earlier, maybe 200 years earlier. So that brings us to the ancient Greeks of 500 BC, around the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. So maybe Isaiah did have some information. Maybe this isn't supernatural revelation. But wait, we're not done yet. Let's go to Proverbs 8.27. Proverbs 8.27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he set a circle on the surface of the deep, or a circuit. Again, we have that same Hebrew word. I believe the ESV translates it as circle. So, um, this is a section of Proverbs where wisdom is personified as a person. So when it says, when he established, talking about God, Yahweh, I was there, meaning wisdom. I was there in him. The wisdom of God. When he set a circle on the surface of the deep, talking about the creation of the earth. So there we have that concept of a circle again. Well, who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. Well, now we're back to around 800 B.C. But it goes back even further. Let's look at Job 
Job 26.10. He has described a boundary on the surface of the waters and to the confines of light and darkness, is what my Bible says. He has, um, am I in the right place? Job 26.10. He has described a boundary on the surface of the waters and to the confines of light and darkness. What is that um, in the ESV translation? Right. That's the same Hebrew word that we read in the two other verses. Here, the LEV um, uh, translates it as boundary, but it's the same word. So we're talking about the same thing. So it's a circular boundary. Again, when was Job written? Job was written around 2000 BC, around the time of Abraham. So... We've got supernatural revelation of the way that God created the earth all the way through Scripture, all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. And Isaiah 2, that was obviously supernaturally given to him. So um, it's just to praise God for the uh, amazing, um, the, the amazing miraculous word inspired of the Holy Spirit, and accurate on the things of science that it speaks about. In this case, um, astronomy. So, our technology, as it's advanced, let's talk about a little bit about the James Webb Space Telescope. Many of you probably don't know about it, because the, I don't know why, but the press hasn't talked a lot about it, but it's amazing. So, you remember the Hubble Space Telescope. We still have that in orbit around the Earth. Um, an amazing technological advancement. Um, the, the James Webb Space Telescope is not in orbit around the Earth. It was positioned as a planetary object in orbit around the Sun. So we place the James Webb Telescope in a stable planetary orbit around the Sun. It also looks into the infrared spectrum of light, not just the visible spectrum. So its ability to see is thousands of times better than the James Webb, uh, than the uh, Hubble telescope. And because of initial problems and getting it set up and getting it going, we didn't start to get new images, you know, images from the James Webb Space Telescope until this summer. I mean, just just a few months ago. They're now starting to get new images, NASA is, from James Webb and processing them. Now it's working well and everything's going good. Okay, how old, according to evolutionary cosmologists, how old is the universe? When did the Big Bang happen? How long ago? How many billion? Okay, there's, there's your age talking, too. <laughs> um, my generation was taught 15 billion, and that's been a pretty stable number for, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, if it's not 20 years, their math on the Big Bang is way off, and they got serious problems. Okay, so... These images we're getting back from the James Webb Telescope. 
what's the farthest universe away from us that we can see now in the James Webb Space Telescope? Remember, this is observation. We're seeing something that far away, and we're saying to ourselves, how is that possible? We don't know, but it is. Okay? These objects that we see that far out are that far out. What's the farthest universe that we've seen now at the James Webb Space Telescope? Distance in, in astronomy is measured in light years. It's not time, it's distance. Light, a light year is a distance. So in light years, away from us, the farthest telescope, universe we can see now is 33 billion light years away. Now, one of the biggest arguments against young Earth creationism ever since it started, it, it, one of the first go-to things was go out at night and look at the stars, get your telescope out, look at the, a couple galaxies away from us. You know, they're 100 billion years, or say they're 100 million years away. Say they're 5 million years away. Say they're 1 million years away. How are you saying that the universe is 7,000 years old when we can see something that's a million years away? How did the light get here if it's only been 7,000 years? That's been one of the hardest questions for biblical creationists ever since the beginning. So there's a lot of very technical proposed answers to that question. Many of them now, over the past 20 years, um, some of them relate to Einstein's relativity theories, and some of them they relate to the idea that when, during the creation week, physical constants in the universe weren't necessarily what they are now, like the speed of light. But these are some of the proposed answers to that question. And the, evolutionists, the evolutionary cosmologists basically laughed at the young Earth creationists for generations over this idea. Okay? Now, we can turn it back onto them and say, what happened to your 15 billion year universe? How are you able to see a universe 33 billion years away if the universe is only 15 billion years? Whoops. I guess the universe is 33 billion years. <laughs> what happens when we build a better telescope than the James Webb and we see farther away than that? Whoops, I guess the universe is however much farther that is. <laughs> you see, now suddenly they have the same problem. So now they're starting to have some serious issues they're having to go back and rework the whole Big Bang Theory and the timing and the math and everything is a big problem, huge. So, and I think that's probably why you're not hearing a lot about it. There's not like these wonderful front cover magazine articles in Scientific American about what's the longest universe away that we can see, you know, or galaxy away that we can see. So, because it's very inconvenient information for the current cosmology. Praise God. Praise God. How is it that we live in a universe that is 
from here to there, 33 billion light years across. How is that? I don't know. But it is. It is that big. Now, there's another concept in these verses that we read, especially the one in Isaiah, that talks about God. Let's go back to Isaiah. Isaiah. That was Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circuit of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This speaks to the expanding universe that we live in. There's no question that our universe is not stationary, that it is, in fact, expanding outward at a rapid rate. Every galaxy in our universe is moving farther and farther away from every other galaxy in an outward expansion. That doesn't mean that our solar system is outwardly expanding. The gravity of our sun keeps the planets in their orbits. But the galaxy we belong to, the Milky Way, is moving farther and farther away from all the other galaxies in the outward expansion of the universe. This is an unquestioned observation over decades now. So this is one of the reasons why the Big Bang was first proposed. God created our universe this way. How did Isaiah know that? No way. But there it is. Again, supernatural revelation. So, let's switch gears and let's talk about another supernatural revelation. A little nugget, a little clue in the Old Testament as to how God's salvation will work. Because it took a lot more faith before Jesus came to believe that God had a way to forgive our sins. What he had revealed, revealed a way to be obedient to him and by that obedience, through repentance, obtain forgiveness. But as I taught before, there is no mechanism in the Torah for God's forgiveness of intentional rebellious sin against him. The only penalty for that was death. There was no animal sacrifice sufficient for that penalty. The animal sacrifices were for sins against other men, intentionally, and the animal sacrifices were for unintentional sins against our fellow man and against God. But for intentional rebellious sin against God, There was no animal sacrifice. There was no mechanism for forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that one would not come. That doesn't mean that there was not one in the plan of God. See, the Old Testament believers believed that God would forgive. That would be a part of his plan. It just wasn't revealed. And that's why it took a lot of faith to believe in something not yet revealed. What you were doing is you were trusting in the character of God. You were trusting in your relationship. And this is why we see some beautiful things in the Psalms from David. 
especially after his sin with Bathsheba. Um, no question that David believed in God's plan, not knowing what it would be, but that it would involve a descendant of his as Messiah, because that was promised, and David believed God's promises. So here's a little, here's a little nugget that helped with those Old Testament believers, um, helped their faith. And there are lots of little nuggets all over the Old Testament that speak to God's plan, his new covenant, or his renewed covenant plan. Um, we have Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 to 40. And if you guys want to write these down and read them later in case we don't have time, because I think we might not have time. I don't know. What time is it? How much time do I have? 36. Uh, I don't have time to read all of these. But write these down. And you can, uh, in your devotions this week, you can read these. These are the expressions of the coming renewal of God's covenant what he would accomplish in Messiah for the forgiveness of all sins, for all people, for all time. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 to 40. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 36. And then specifics on how that would work. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 through 12. Sure. Jeremiah 31, 27 to 40. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 36. Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. Isaiah 40, 10. And Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. All right, let me tell you about this. Those are some of the little bit more obvious places. But I'm going I'm to uh, let you in on this fun little detail where we have a theological revelation in the Old Testament. Uh, and that is a little known name of God. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, and Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16. So let's go to Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. See, God doesn't just reveal supernaturally the state of the universe that he created to his prophets in the Old Testament, but he also reveals supernaturally how his salvation will work. Okay, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, says Yahweh, that I will raise to David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely and will execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In his days, Yehuda or Judah, will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is his name by which he will be called. Now, who are we talking about? I will raise to David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. Who are we talking about? Our returning Messiah, Savior, King, Jesus? Yes. What will the name by which he will be called? What is that name? Yahweh Tzidkenu. Yahweh Tzidkenu. What that means in Hebrew is Yahweh is our righteousness. Mind blower. 
Did Jeremiah know what he was writing? Yahweh is our righteousness. Not Yahweh is righteous, and Yahweh has a righteous plan, and Yahweh will help us to be righteous. No, it means Yahweh is our righteousness. How how will we be, how will we act on that day of judgment when we finally confront Yahweh and our Messiah, Jesus. You know, there's been songs written about it. There's been countless sermons preached on that. But I think all of us, without question, who trust in what Jesus did for us and understand our place that God has lovingly given to us, we understand that there's nothing about us. There's no righteousness in us at that moment. What could we bring? Nothing. But Yahweh is our righteousness. How would an Old Testament believer understand that? Only, only by faith. Only by saying, okay, God, If that's the way it's going to be, I believe what you're saying. I don't know how that's going to work. How is that going to work? God, how are you going to do that? But if that's what you're saying, then I believe it. Now, another really interesting second use of that. These are the only two times in Scripture that name is used. Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16. In those days and at that time, I will cause a branch of righteousness to grow up to David. He will execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days, Yehuda will be saved, and Yerushalayim, that's Jerusalem, will dwell securely. This is the name by which she will be called. Now it's using a female pronoun here because it's referring to the city of Jerusalem. So what will the city of Jerusalem be called? When are we by the way, when are we talking? What are these days? When are the days that the branch of righteousness in David will execute judgment and righteousness in the land? What what is that time of Jesus' kingdom rule in the land, in Jerusalem? The millennial kingdom, exactly. Okay? Jesus returns as king. This is the millennial kingdom. And his city of reign is Jerusalem. This is the name by which Jerusalem will be called. Yahweh. Seed Kenu. I don't know where I will be at that time. If I'll be in Jerusalem or not. But how wonderful to think. If I am in Jerusalem. That the name of the place where I will be is Yahweh is my righteousness. I'm here because Yahweh is my righteousness. Do you see the meaning there? I'm not here without that. I'm here only because of that. Beautiful, huh? Yahweh Tzid Kenu. All right. Let's, let's caution, though. 
And I just want to point out a few, one thing from Romans because we just hit it in Sunday school. Do we live our lives then? If Yahweh is our righteousness, do we live our lives like how we live makes no difference? Remember what Paul says somewhere in Romans? Do we sin all the more so that we can get more grace? What did he say? By no means. Heaven forbid. No way. Right? Our obedience comes from our faith. Because of our faith. Because of the true relationship we have through the Holy Spirit with Yahweh. That's how we can be obedient. So, To caution against this idea that if Yahweh is our righteousness, then how we behave makes no difference. Um, it's important to understand here in verse Romans 1, 16. The end of Romans 1, 16, where it says, Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. That Greek word, believes this is not the only place in scripture that's why i'm pointing it out when we read it that way it's really unfortunate that the english translations say for everyone who believes because it makes it sound like believes is a one-time event i walked down the aisle i got saved i believed i'm good okay but the greek word means continually believes there's a tense in the verb that means continually. So the correct understanding is, for I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who continually believes for the Jew first and then for the Greek. This is not an unusual use of that idea, that word. Other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians one twenty one says almost the same thing. Continually believes. I'll read it really quick. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. All right. Foreseeing that in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. It was the good pleasure of God through the foolishness of the proclaiming to save those who believe. But the Greek is continually believes. It was the good pleasure of, El, of God through the foolishness of the proclaiming to save those who continually believe. And then we have the same thing. John, the Gospel of John, uses the Greek word believe a lot at every place. It's continually believe. The Greek tense is the same. Continually, continually, continually. I'll give you the references and you could look at it. John three fourteen to 16. John 3.36, John 5.24, John 6.35.40 and 46, John 11.25 and 26, John 20.31. The most famous, of course, of those is John 3.16. Let's just read that one. We all know it. 
Thus God so loved the world that he gave the only begotten Son that whoever continually believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's not my theological take on it. That's what the Greek word means. So we have to understand there's a balance in Scripture. And we need to receive that balance. We have to do our best to understand it, do our best to live it. There is this idea that we have a responsibility. And where the line is drawn between our responsibility and God's supernatural, providential will, where you draw that line is really hard, and I can't answer that. I'm just saying, this is what I observe in Scripture. and This is what I present to you as the truth. <clears throat> no questions so far. <laughs> Anybody have a comment? Dan? Right. Abiding. Obviously, this is not the only, these aren't the only places in Scripture with that. Right, right, right. And that might be close to the same place he was talking about, the vine staying, you know, connected to the vine. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I have a few more minutes. I'll end with a poem I take, the, I take this from Isaiah's response to Yahweh when he saw the vision of, the, of, of heaven and God's throne. And also John had a similar response when the Apostle John had the vision of Jesus, his Messiah, coming in glory to give him the revelation of the book of Revelation. So we have a similar response. So think of that as I read this poem. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, eyes, hands, living among sinful people in unclean land. Woe is me, I am down low, on the ground at your feet, as though dead, trusting you to say, Be not afraid. Rise up instead. Hallelujah, Hove, Sidkenu. Hallelujah, Shua, Sidkenu. Hallelujah, Ruach, Sidkenu. The King is one, and He is our righteousness. Yes, He is our righteousness. God bless.